Hi everyone, it's Dr. Minardi here, uh, and welcome to uh, STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From? Today we are joined by a Brown University graduate student named Mel. Welcome to the stage, Mel. Hi. Mel, Mel Ortiz Alvarez de la Campa is a Puerto Rican and queer scientist, writer, and artist. They graduated from the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras, with a BS in Integrative Biology and a minor in Medical Humanities in 2021. They are currently a third-year Pathobiology PhD candidate at Brown University, as well as an NSF Graduate Research Fellow. Their research focuses on finding a link between early life adversity, anxiety, and the microbiome. Outside of the lab, Mel is co-founder of Ciencia, a Spanish language SciComm initiative based in the Caribbean. So let's all welcome Mel and we're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. That's great. And, and we're just so thrilled to have you here. So let's start off a little bit as a um, to learn a little bit about you, your, your person, your background, what drives you as a person. Um, let's just know a little bit more about Mel. Sure. So as the intro suggested, um, you know, I'm born and raised from in Puerto Rico. Uh, I actually have Puerto Rican and Cuban parents, so a little bit of both. And I think that I've grown up in the island having a very much kind of open and like positive kind of upbringing. Like I grew up as a very curious person, a very curious student, um, always trying to find like the bright side of things and pivoting a lot. So changing my mind a lot, which I think is going to become a theme, especially when we start talking about the career side of things and the STEM side of things. Um, over that, I have also always been a huge artistic thinker. Like I love art and writing and music. Um, whenever I can combine all three, I just, that's what makes me really, really happy. And I think that all of that kind of has influenced uh, the person I've turned into and, and also the research I've turned into since then. Uh, so thank you for that, Mel. Um, I want to know a little bit more about what impacts you in the work that you do in the lab, outside of the lab, with your art. Um, what are sort of the impactful things that, um, that you want to speak a little about? Sure. Um, well, like I said um, a little bit in, in the beginning, um, for me, it's been really important to find ways to kind of integrate art and writing into what I'm doing, um, just because I know that those are parts that make me very passionate. And something I learned pretty quickly early on is that not a lot of scientists like integrating art and writing and artsy, like creative things into research work. So it's always been a point of contention um, when I'm doing research of trying to explain to people, oh, you should make things accessible. You should make things attractive and sound cool. Like they might sound cool to you, but someone outside your field is not gonna understand you if you say it that way. Um, and it's that sort of stuff that I think really changes the way that I plan my experiments, the way I talk about my research. Um, 
and just overall, like how I interact with other students in the program, people that are interested in like getting into science in one way or another, or just humans that I meet in my day to day too. Um, no, I really love that. Um, so then that, that begs the question then, how did you get introduced to STEM? Um, and was it through art? Is there a good collaboration between the two that introduced you? I'm really curious about that. Well, funnily enough, um, no. So my introduction to STEM was thanks to a very, very good um, science teacher that I had uh, in, in middle school and high school. Uh, her name was Jeannie Quinones. Uh, sadly, she's passed away, but she was absolutely wonderful. And she would bring engineers to give talks. She would give um, little science fair competitions between the grades. Um, and she was very responsible for like bringing science outside of the classroom and in. And for me, at first, I didn't, it wasn't something I was receptive to. A lot of the times, like she would kind of push me and be like, you have the highest grade in the class. You have to do science fair type of thing. Um, and at the time, I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now looking back on it. Um, but it was kind of her influence that made me think about it in the background. But up until 11th grade, I was convinced that I was going to be a chef. Like I was going to study pastry chef. I was going to have my own bakery. It was That was going to be my career and my, out, like, my outlook in life was I'm going to do that. Um, but at that point... Um, Close to that, uh, some things happened in my personal life and as well as some things that I was witness to. And to me, I kind of changed my mind a lot about what I was planning on doing. Uh, and it kind of very overnight turned into pastry, from pastry chef into death. So I was really interested in <laughs> how like the body worked after death, um, what happens after death. Um, stuff like that. And she was very influential in telling me like, well, you know, you could be a doctor, you could follow that sort of path. Um, you know, you, you could be a forensic pathologist. Uh, she's the first one that kind of introduced me to that term. And I was like, huh, okay, I'll research that. That sounds fun. So I went from cakes and pastries to um, death and dying. And that was me for pretty much almost my entire college career until like maybe junior year of college that I decided to pivot into research. Um, because in the track of finding this like kind of medic medical school track, I started doing research and I realized like, oh, I don't really like the death and dying part because I want to be there with the patient. I just like understanding the biology of it. Like I like understanding what comes from what's happening and how can it be like used to improve lives that are still here right um and that's the pivot that I had to take in order to figure that out I was like okay then medicine is not for me anymore I guess I'm going to follow the PhD route and I've ended up here and what I'm doing now and I really think it was the right choice so that, that gives us a little bit of an introduction as to why you chose pathobiology, right? Um, so I think post-graduate school and post-finishing your PhD, you know, what, what are your career aspirations? What are your career goals? Sure. Well, 
they're another pivot again. Um, even though I really, I really like what I'm doing now, I see myself uh, becoming a science communicator um, or a science writer. So in the process of discovering all these things that I've shared and the fact that I love biology and I love STEM, I realized that there's a lot of people around me that did not have the same appreciation that I did for a lot of the topics. And it was mostly due because they didn't have a Mrs. Genie in their life, right? They didn't have someone that loved science and was passionate about it in their life and could teach it to them in a way that they could understand. Um, so they kind of saw this as this thing that you either did really badly in school or you only need if you're going to med school, right? Um, and seeing that and combining it with the fact that I love art and writing and I've seen how impactful art and writing can be in like sharing emotion and sharing um, the human aspect of things, I've always thought, can I combine the two now? You know, can I take what I'm learning now in pathobiology and what I'm doing in my lab and help people understand it beyond the conferences that I go to or beyond like the papers that I write? Can I talk to a kindergartner and explain what I'm doing uh, and have them think, that's so cool, just as if I told them I went to the moon, right? Um, so I see myself becoming a science writer, science communicator in some way. Well, I love that too, because I think there are different mediums to communicate science, exactly to your point. Um, and you can not only through different mediums, but also visualizations and um, written and audio even. And so I'm, I'm curious about if you've thought about the amalgamation of art, writing, and, and science. Yeah. Um, if you talk to my friends, they would certainly laugh at, 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 at this, but I do a little bit of everything in the sense that I, I've done medical comics where I like illustrate a medical concept in like a comic strip type of way. Um, I've done podcasts previously. I've done blogs and articles uh, for like a popular newspaper type of thing. Um, and I've done presentations at conferences and stuff like that. So I, I've been dipping my hand into all those different pies and trying to figure out what area I love. But in general, I think it's just the creation aspect of it and the communication that speaks to me. So I'm still very open to what that might look like in the end. And I think Ciencia Patodes, which is the initiative I'm part of, um, is kind of the dream combo of all those things so far. Um, it's kind of where I found the most, uh, the most enlightening ways to kind of bring together this information in a way that gives back to my specific community too. Oh, I really love that. Well, that's, and congratulations on that and best of luck, obviously. Um, Let's take a little bit of a step back to your current state, right? As, as I introduced you, you're currently at Brown, you're an NSF fellow. We talked a little bit about so far your introduction to pathobiology, but I'm curious about how did you come to land at Brown and how was that pathway and what guided you or was it by happenstance? I'm, I'm really curious about that. The person that I am working for right now, my PI, uh, Peter Belenke is the person that I first kind of did formal research with at Brown, um, thanks to Hurricane Maria. So back in 2017, uh, still at the UPR, Hurricane Maria hit and it shut down the university 
for um, a number of months, but universities that stepped up in that process um, to take in students from the UPR uh, into a special program where we could continue our studies after the her students. And I spent a year abroad, right, but it's at Brown University studying, finishing. At that point, it would have been my sophomore year, college. And thanks to that, I met a lot of professors here that helped me apply to the Leadership Alliance uh, research program. And through that, I met Peter. So Peter became my mentor for a summer. Um, I did research with him. I learned about the microbiome. Like, he's the person that taught me how to pipette. Um, like, I learned all lab stuff from him. <laughs> and just, I remember at the end, whether if I wanted an MD, PhD, or if I wanted to do a PhD, like where I wanted to go with things. And he took me on a walk and he said, I think you should be a PhD. It's my opinion. I'm not gonna change whatever it is that's going on in your head. Uh, but I think you've got what it takes for the PhD part at least. And I'd love to have you if you ever change your mind. And I was like, okay. But at that point I was not thinking I would take him up on the offer. And flash forward four years after that, I decided to apply. Actually, I changed my mind. I do want to go to a PhD at this point. Um, sign me up. And he helped me. He helped me like figure out things now. And we were working on some really, really fun stuff together. So I'd say it worked out. Oh, that's great. And I'm, I'm really curious to learn more. Um, but to have a mentor, I think to be so crucial to you in making that decision, um, I think is, is key particular to, um, sort of having that guiding, guiding person, guiding principal, if you will. Um, so give us a little bit of an introduction in a couple of, you know, minutes about your research. I mean, we obviously went through, um, an introductory sort of a, at the apex of, anxiety and microbiome and I'm um, pathobiology. And I'm just curious from your, your standpoint and sort of your verbal overview of, of how you would introduce the subject matter in your research. So we've talked a little bit about how you've come to Brown, your, your sort of personality, and let's actually take a step back at what you're currently studying in your current research. We know that it's obviously pathobiology and, and topical nature. Um, it has, it's at the apex of understanding sort of anxiety and microbiome. And I want you to give a little bit of voiceover as to the overall overview, the big picture, why you're doing what you're doing, um, sort of the, the big sort of broad um, research topical area, and then we'll dip, take a deep dive. Sure. Um, I think the best way to explain it is that um, there's a huge population portion of autistic people that develop um, different varying stages or degrees of severity of anxiety. And we don't really understand why. Um, there's, of course, social components, like social factors that go into it, but they're not the whole story. And personally, uh, one of the hypotheses that I come up with is that maybe it might be related to uh, their gastrointestinal issues, specifically uh, some kind of gut microbiome 
um, change or dysbiosis as we call it. And my work essentially has been trying to find a model of mouse that I can use to kind of study that relationship between having a permeable or um, kind of a poor microbiome composition and then how that relates to being impacted by stress and anxiety symptoms in these mice. Um, so it's a lot of big factors that I've been trying to combine in the project, uh, but so far we're seeing some kind of interesting results that I'm excited to share. No, that's great. And that's really, really interesting. Um, why mouse models rather than either an alternative animal uh, model, or I'm just curious about that. Sure. Um, there's a number of reasons. First is feasibility, right? Like I need to be able to have a number of experiments done by the time that I finish the degree, which is slowly ticking down the clock. And also in terms of the microbiome community, it's just a community that we're very familiar with and that we understand well. Um, and there's a wealth of literature that I could rely on in, on the microbiome side um, to kind of understand what dynamics might be happening there. Thank you. Um... And, and thanks for uh, for answering my my semi ridiculous question in a mouse model. Um, I'm curious. Okay, so you have results. You currently have a protocol you're building through. You have um, ex experiments that you're currently conducting. Tell us about them. Sure. Um, well, I'm in my third year, so that means uh, for people that aren't familiar with the grad program, you know, I've passed quals. I have a plan of action as one would say, and I'm in full swing of doing experiments. So far, I've been looking at the composition of the model that I'm using in particular, which is mice that are subjected to stress in an early period of their life. Um, and this kind of results in them having anxiety symptoms later on. And so far I've characterized a lot of their kind of baseline microbiome composition. And I've seen that there is some differences between just control mice that are never subjected to stress and potentially um, some like taxonomic changes that might imply uh, the differences in the functionality of the microbiome too. And when you say that you correlate them to stress levels, how do you metricize the, the stress levels within the mice? I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, there's a number of ways. In my case, I use uh, some tests known as the open field test, for example, which is putting mice in a box and then evaluating how much time they spend in the center, which is a very kind of scary part um, of the box for mice since they're natural prey animals. They want to hide in corners uh, versus how much time they spend, obviously, in the corners, whereas they spend uh, they feel safer. So mice that are more anxious are going to stay away from that center part longer than mice that are a little bit more comfortable in their surroundings. Uh, so that's an example of a type of test I do. I do other similar ones that have a similar um, principle. And then to measure more on the like autism-like symptoms, um, obviously these mice don't have autism. It's just like a model of uh, some, uh, different clinical presentations. Uh, we also do a test that I love. It's like one of my favorites is the marble burying test. Uh, we put mice in a cage with a bunch of marbles and a lot of bedding and just let them explore freely. 
and we count how many marbles the mice bury. And it's kind of really funny to see them um, just running around and burying these marbles under the bedding. And it just seems like they're having fun when they're doing it. They're kind of just playing around. Okay, so thank you again for, for talking us a little bit through the mouse model. I'm curious, however, about how you um, understand the microbiome. You know, what are the analytical tests? How do you procure that? Um, and, then, and then specifically, what are you studying on a molecular level? Yeah, so to study the microbiome, um, right now I'm doing what is known as 16S sequencing. Um, so I'm basically amplifying, uh, collecting DNA from samples and amplifying specific regions of bacterial DNA. Um, and then I'm sequencing that in order to kind of compare it to a database. And then that database tells me um, what bacteria are there. Uh, I plan on doing metagenomic sequencing soon, which means I'll have a much wider picture of what's happening and not just looking at bacteria, but potentially looking at um, fungi or other organisms that might be present as well. And I also look at uh, ELISAs, so these assays to determine uh, concentration of different compounds and specifically the blood of the mice. So I take blood samples and I check for hormone levels uh, just because I'm interested in seeing how different hormone levels, particularly like stress hormones and stuff like that, are elevated in these mice and trying to relate those back to uh, their microbiome as well. So I'm really curious then, what are you, what are your current results um, and what are you seeing? Are you seeing your hypotheses being proven true or disproven? Well, that's the fun part about the microbiome. It's really hard to be wrong. It's just, you're gonna be a little off. Like there's always gonna be something that's different because every, something always changes um, with microbiome. It's just a question of whether you were right about what changed or not. Um, so that means it's always interesting to look at. In my case, I've definitely seen that the, these mice seem to have a less diverse community most of the time. Um, and I'm also looking at uh, difference between sexes. So I've also seen that females uh, tend to fare worse in a lot of the behavioral issues. And they also tend to have like more diversity differences in their community as well, um, suggesting that, you know, there's some kind of potential inflammation or uh, kind of difference in metabolic activity that's happening in their gut that might be leading to their having these kind of disparate outcomes in the behavior, uh, which is really interesting to see. That is really, really interesting. Um, and never being wrong is always a good thing, I think, in science in particular. <laughs> um, what keeps you up at night with your, your studies? I mean, I could, I could go on all day, but I think that as someone that has anxiety themselves, I definitely think a lot about the timeline. You know, sometimes if it takes me a little too long, especially preparing these models that I work with takes a few months every time. So I just, I, I worry about like, if I find something, will it be too late or will it be quick enough to help people out there um, have alternatives to treatment, which is the overall goal for this, right? To provide an alternative that doesn't rely on 
drug, like pharmaceutical drug use, um, and more something that can be maybe supplemental or just a lifestyle change that can just help the quality of life. And yeah, I think about it a lot of like, how long is it going to take me? If I'm ever going to make that, who knows? But I guess that's a struggle that any scientist that works with something to help people has, right? So true story. I struggled with that for sure. Um, as, as we wrap up here, I think for words of wisdom for, you know, students who are thinking about a career um, in science or STEM um, and or taking the research route, what have you, what could you impart to them? And, you know, if you were in their shoes, what would you like to have known? I think that first of all, it's important to know that you don't have to have this 100% perfect understanding of everything in science class. You don't have to be perfect at math. You don't have to be perfect in general to be a scientist. Uh, I think that that's an expectation that I set on myself very early on. Um, and I thought, you know, I can't, I'm not good enough at this, so why would I try type of thing? Um, and then looking back, if I could have someone that kind of told me like, that doesn't matter, just go for it, try it. And the, worst thing that can happen is that you pivot and try something else. Um, I would have really appreciated it. And also that we like to think that science is very objective and inhuman, like it's emotionless and done in a vacuum, but it's not. Um, in fact, the best science often comes because someone knew something about a personal aspect or related to what they were doing and were able to connect thoughts that someone that was impartial would have never connected, right? So I think it's also important to think about that and say, like, if you think you're too emotional or too um, empathetic to do something like a science career, then you're not. That's actually precisely what we should be looking for when we recruit, because it might make the difference. I really love that. I, I, I appreciate that. And, um... I think that is that is wonderful words of wisdom, particularly to young burgeoning scientists. Um, so with that, I thank you, Mel, for your time and your um, dedication, not only to future uh, scientists and to folks um, in STEM, but also the best of luck in your endeavors and your research. Don't stay up tonight worrying about your mouse models. I'm sure they will be fine. Um, and hey, you'll never be wrong, right? So. <laughs> Um, this was a great conversation. Again, thank you so much for, for joining me. And um, this is where Mel's journey stemmed from. So we hope to have um, more graduate students in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much.